0: All right, this morning we're going to hear what God spoke to the people of Israel uh, after their nation had been destroyed and they were sitting in the nation of Babylon uh, wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, This is from Isaiah chapter 44 beginning in verse 6. Let's be standing please as we hear this God's word to these people, God's word to us. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. The word of God. Ooh, that's quickly become one of my favorites. Love that song. You know, some of the things that Jesus says I find very comforting and encouraging. However, some of his sayings are more challenging, and the one I'm about to read I would say is even haunting. Uh, this saying is recorded, as I think, only once in Scripture by Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, but it's a saying that comes to my mind often, especially trying to work and minister in the context that I do. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus. So they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, Oh, it'll be fair weather tomorrow, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You guys know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of your times. Pharisees and Sadducees were some of the most religious people of their day. And they were living right in a time when God was bringing to a climax the plan and the work that he had so carefully laid out for centuries. Starting all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and decided to do things their own way, and because of that, there was a great distance between them and God, God set forth a plan to bring his creation, his people, back to him. And he even talked about it there. And then all through what we call the Old Testament, the prophets had said, God is sending someone. God is working through these things. There will come a Messiah. And one day he will pour his spirit out on his people. And his people will be his children again. And humanity and creation and God will be joined back together. And here it was happening right in front of their noses, in their own lifetime, and they were missing it. Jesus kind of tweaks them a little bit. He says, you know, you can predict the weather, even back then, before we had the radar and the maps and the satellites, they would look up at the sky in the evening, and if the sky was red, they would say, well, tomorrow's going to be a nice day because we have a red sky in the evening.'" But if you got up in the morning and the sky was threatening and red, you say, oh, today's going to be stormy. Jesus says, you can predict the weather. You can read the signs in the sky. But you can't read the signs of your own time. Now, the reason that haunts me is because I realize that as Jesus challenges these people, to be aware of the times around them and to see the signs that are there. He's also reaching through the centuries to me and to you. And he could ask us this same question. Can you read the signs of the times? Do we know what it is that God is doing in our time? Do we know what the will of God is for our time? Do we know what faithfulness to God looks like in our time? You know, that changes. God never changes. And in many senses, our faith never changes. But in different times, the way we express that faith, what we are called upon to stand up and be and to do and to look like, changes. Do we know what our times call for? What are we being called to do and to be as children of God today? Well if you do much reading or listening, you know that there's a term that's being thrown around a lot these days to describe our times. And that term is post-Christian. Post-modern is another term, it looks at it in a little different way, but I'm really concerned about this term called post-Christian, that we now live in a post-Christian world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that at one time in the past, we lived in a world that was really influenced and dominated by the Christian ideals and principles and faith. That there was a time whenever society was kind of organized and shaped according to what the Bible had to say. That Christianity and the church pretty much set the agenda. And that the scriptures fairly much shaped the laws of the dominant nations on the earth. Not all of them, but those who were powerful and influential had pretty much been shaped by the scripture. And therefore, the culture that was around us Propped up Christianity. But to say that we now live in a post Christian world says that that time has passed. That the church no longer is the prominent voice in our culture, in our world. And that Christian principles are no longer the guiding principles that help us to establish our practices and our laws. Now, I think that's a fairly easy observation to make, that there's a lot of truth about that. In some big ways and some small ways. Small way. Those, those of you who are, are, you know, have a few years behind you, I won't you know, identify how many, has anything changed about Wednesday evenings in our culture? Yeah. What, when I was a kid, nothing was scheduled on Wednesday evening. Why? You didn't go to band practice. You didn't. If football practice got out early, uh, you know, no Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, soccer, nothing scheduled anything on Wednesday evening. Why? Well, because the church had said, we're going to use Wednesday evenings to train our people. We're going to use Wednesday evenings for educational purposes for the church. And society stepped back and said, well, the church has chosen that, therefore we won't interfere. Is that true anymore? What about Sunday? How have Sundays changed in our society? Do you remember back when everything just shut down on Sunday? The only thing that was open on Sunday was church. If you wanted to do something on Sunday, you went to church because that was the only thing to do. You couldn't go shopping. There weren't any sporting events. You just couldn't do it. Is that true now? Throughout Europe, church attendance has dwindled to practically nothing and yet Europe was one of the pace-setting areas of the world that brought the Christian age to the world. Here in America, in many places, church attendance on Sundays is dwindling down to nothing. And even here in San Angelo, who, where we are, are, are probably still more dedicated than a lot of parts of the world, you know, how many of you had traffic problems getting to church today? Were the streets just packed with cars? When you pulled out of your, park, your, your driveway in your neighborhood, was the neighborhood bustling and all the neighbors coming and going? And kind of sleepy, wasn't it? I think it's easy for us to see that times are changing. Bigger ways? Are our laws anymore aligned with scriptural principles? Is that the first thing we go to when our legislature is passing laws is what does the Bible say? And what are the principles by which we should live? And then, of course, it gets even into our morality and what is right and what is wrong. It certainly affects our view of marriage. And do we look to scriptural and Christian principles for what marriage is like? Or do we begin to construct principles for ourselves and say, this is the order that we will do things in, you know? We'll move in together, we'll buy a house, and we'll talk about getting married. the structure of families and what comprises families has changed. So you know, I think it's easy for us to see that there's some truth in this if we describe our culture as post-Christian. Well, what are we supposed to do? If we read the signs of the time and say we're living in an age different than it was 40, 50 years ago. What do we do now? Well the reason I began thinking along these lines is because our text today reminds us of something. And it reminds us of this, that this is not the first time this has happened to God's people. That in different times, God's people have pretty much set the agenda for if not the world, at least the region and the area around it. And there have been other times when they lost that. And whenever the surrounding culture overwhelmed them, and they began setting the pace, and they began defining what will be and what to do. One of those times is whenever Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed, knocked down to just flat ground, and the people, many of them, carried off to live in Babylonia in the Babylonian culture. Now, what do they do? They no longer had the temple to go and worship in. The temple had so defined who they were. And they had so trusted that God was their defender and that he would not let a foreign nation invade and destroy them. But it had happened. And now what do you do? You're sitting there in Babylonia and your kids are growing up with Babylonian values. And not only are they just absorbing the worship of gods like Marduk and Nebo not only are they, they struggling with, with, with religious things, it's, it's who they are and what they do. And in fact, the Babylonians, to make it worse, they even set up a program to train the Jewish young people to be good Babylonians. One example of that is Daniel chapter 1. Uh, I'm not going to take time to read that, but many of you know the story of Daniel and his three friends. Daniel and their Babylon... They even renamed them, didn't They gave them Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, okay, we're going to turn you into Babylonians. Forget about this Jewish stuff. Forget about this Yahweh. Yahweh lost. We're going to show you how to live a life that's more full, more exciting, more fun. And so they took people like that even into the court of the king himself and began to train What do you do in a situation like that? You can imagine mothers and fathers and grandparents sitting around going, What happened? And what next? Into that context, God speaks. And what we have here in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, are words of great comfort, but also of challenge and direction of what do you do when you live in a post-Jewish Babylon? What do you do when you live in a post-Christian America? God begins by saying this, Thus says the Lord. Now the Lord is his name, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. That same God that has gone through so many cultures and so many changes, he is still here. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, that's kind of strange, isn't it? What what sounds kind of strange about him calling himself the King of Israel right now? There is no Israel, is there? Or at least maybe they wouldn't think there was. But he says, I'm still your King, and I'm still in charge. His Redeemer. God identifies himself as the one who redeems the one who can change things, the one who can put things back together, that he isn't the one who just abandons those who are struggling, but yet he is here for all and especially for those who need his help. And then he identifies himself as the Lord of hosts, which is military terminology. I am the general of a great army. The Babylonian army hasn't won, This culture has not had the final say in the way things will be. Because it goes on to say, I am the first and I am the last. I was here at the beginning, I will be here at the end. And even though culture and society are going through all these various changes and things are up and down and up and down, don't worry, we're going to make it through it. I will be here. I am the one who who started things and I am the one who will decide how things will end. Trust me. He goes on to say, I'm the one that tells you how things really are. I'm the one that told you what things were going to happen. And look, they have happened, just like I said they were. Can anyone else really do that? No. There is no other God. After saying all of this, he gets to verse 8. And I really start listening very intently because he tells us what to do when things fall apart around us he says and listen to this do not fear or be afraid god does not want his children to live in despair and if he can say that to people sitting in babylonia possessing nothing having had all their worldly possessions taken away their nation destroyed everything destroyed if he can tell them don't live in fear do not live in despair, then I need to listen to that as well. I need to hear that my life is not to be dominated by worry. My life is not to be, worried, but be dominated by despair and by gloom. You know, it occurred to me the other day, uh, I was watching a thing on the World's Fair, I think I've mentioned this before, but I just was watching a special on the World's Fair of, of 1964 in New York City, and they were showing all the ways the, the future is going to be. And it just kind of hit me that, you know, we used to look forward to the future. We used to think the future was going to be bright. And there seems to have slipped into our way of thinking the idea that things are only going to get worse. God said, don't live like that. Don't live in despair. But he says, have I not told you from old And declared it, you are my witnesses. And there we have our mandate. What are we to do in post-Christian America? We are to be witnesses that there is still a God and that his way is best. We cannot be lazy Christians in a post-Christian America. Our society no longer props us up. We can't just be Christians by name only and sort of flow along with society expecting that everything that we do just so as we do it like everyone else, then that society, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with this, that, that we will be somewhat Christian. But we have to know who God is. We have to reaffirm our relationship with Him. And we have to be determined that our lives will show everyone That living in accordance with God's ways is the best way to live. One thing that this society really is strong on, they don't like hypocrisy. And if we say we are one thing and we are something else, they will see that. But if we say we are God's people and they can see in our lives that our lives are good and blessed then they will say, we want that. It happened with Daniel and his three friends. Remember them? I mentioned them just a minute ago. How it happened with them whenever they were taken into the, to the, to the court of the king and they were told that now you're going to become Babylonian. You're going to eat Babylonian food. You're going to have Babylonian morals. And they said, no, we're not. We're going to do things the way that God has told us to do them. And at the end of the day, at the end of the period of time, They went and looked at them. Who was the healthiest? Who was the happiest? Whose lives were working? Theirs were. That is the only witness that we can give to a post-Christian America is to show them that the ways of God and the ways of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ work. They produce healthy lives. They produce lives of peace. They produce lives of strength. And the only way we can do that is if we go back and reclaim that relationship with God for real. He goes to close out and he says, is there any other God besides me? No. And that's what we have to hear in our day and time. There's only one God. There's only one authority. He is the one that we look to for who we are and what we do. There is no other rock I know not one. Young people, your, your generation will be looking at you. They're going to need to know how to do family because I tell you what, things are kind of just spiraling and getting awfully chaotic, aren't they? They're going to need to know that there are still young people in this world that can live according to a strong and godly sexual ethic who can marry and stay married who can love their children and love their spouses. They're going to need to have a reference point to turn back and say, these people know how to do it and come and ask, how? And then you say, there is only one God. There is only one rock. And the rest of us, as I said, we can no longer afford to be lazy. We must commit ourselves to keeping those principles that we know so well so that we can simply, within a society that is struggling to find itself, be, as Paul said, shining stars in the darkness, so that others can see that God actually knew what he was talking about, that there is a God, he's first, and he's last. This is what we do in our times. This is what we do for all times. Let's stand and sing we